Isaiah chapter 64, beginning in verse 1, it says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has, it, has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned in these ways. We continue and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you our potter and all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O oh Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look. We all are your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? In chapter 63, Isaiah cries out to the Lord to look down, to consider the circumstances and the condition of the people. Remember last time in chapter 63, verse 15, look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Isaiah reminds the Lord that they needed help, that they were in trouble, that they were in a place and that they were in a position that was really bad. It was so bad that they needed as much help as their ancestors did in the past. You remember, remember when Abraham was in, in trouble? That kind of help. Remember when Jacob wrestled with the angel? That kind of help. Remember when Moses with the children of Israel were on the banks of the Red Sea and the, the armies of Pharaoh were coming in and it looked like we were going to be wiped out? That kind of help. We need help. And you'll recall the Lord's people needed help because 
Not only were they going through a drought, not not only were they going through a dry season, a season in which the zeal and strength of the Lord seemed absent, and the mercy and the compassion of the Lord seemed far away. Just earlier this week, a person came to me and they said, it's like I don't feel the presence of the Lord. It's like I sense that God isn't here. The Lord seems so far away. The yearning of their heart and the mercies. Isaiah's praying and he's saying, Lord, what's happening? Lord, have you changed your mind about us? Have you changed your mind about your plans and your purposes for us? You seem so far away. You seem untouchable, unreachable. Lord, where is the evidence of your presence? Lord, how come I don't sense your love? How, how come I'm not experiencing your miracles? Lord, how come I'm not witnessing your works? Isaiah reminds the Lord the people still needed God because he was their father and redeemer. In chapter 63, verse 16, you can read it for yourself. Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel did not acknowledge us. The idea being... We're no longer recognizable as the children of Abraham, as the children of Israel. Abraham and Israel, if they saw us, it would be hard to imagine that we were actually children of the covenant. The fact that they could acknowledge that the faith of Abraham and the faith of Jacob was distant from them, the present generation's sin was exceedingly sinful, was, was an indication that as Isaiah is praying that the confession is true. When you come to a place where you're crying out in your room, when you're crying out, if my mother, if my father could see me now, how is it possible that I came to this place because I wasn't raised this way? This is not how I was taught to behave. The people cried out to the Lord because they had turned from God. In fact, their hearts were so hard that they no longer feared God. In verse 17, Oh Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? They're not blaming God. God didn't turn his back on them. Return for your servants' sake, the tribes of your inheritance. They were Few, there, was, there were few who trusted and obeyed the Lord, but the prophet cries out to the Lord for the sake of the few, for the sake of the elect. The people cried out to God because of their wickedness, because their sin separated them, alienated them. They were cut off from the presence of God and the guidance of God and the blessings of God. And it all happened because the covenant that they had made between themselves and God was broken. That's what it says in verse 18. Your holy people have possessed it but a little while. We kept your word for a little while. We honored you for a little while. And then all of a sudden the enemies came. (laughs) Raymond Ortland writes, What God wants for us is a passion for His glory to be unrestrained, coming down from heaven to experience Him in new ways. This matters. Typical American Christianity today isn't enough to meet the challenge of our times. In other words, 
Isaiah is talking to his generation and he is saying we need the kind of relationship with God. We need the kind of faith in God. We need the kind of confidence in God where he shows up. Isn't that interesting? And look what it says in verse 1. By the way, in the whole chapter that I just read to you, the first word and the first verse is probably the most important point of the passage. Look what it says. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Have you ever noticed that word, oh, depending on how you say it, can mean so many different things? Oh. Oh! Oh! Do you understand what's happening? It's passion. This isn't just some theological situation that more information is needed. The prophet prays, oh, that you would rend or separate the heavens, that you would come down. By the way, That's probably the best definition of the word revival. That's the meaning of revival. Oh, that God would come down. J.I. Packer gives a definition of revival. God's quickening visitation of his people, touching their hearts, deepening his work of grace in their lives. Here's Robert Baird's definition. Extraordinary season of religious interest. Here's Stephen Alford, the great Bible teacher. The sovereign act of God in which he restores his own backsliding people to repentance and faith and obedience. J. Edwin Orr, times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Robert Coleman, the awakening or quickening of God's people to their true nature and purpose. Charles Finney, the return of the church from her backsliding and the conversion of sinners. Richard Owen Roberts, an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. Duncan Campbell, a community saturated with God. Earl Cairns, the work of the Holy Spirit in restoring the people of God to a more vital spiritual life and witness and work by prayer and the word after repentance in crisis for their spiritual decline. All of those are great definitions. But there's no better definition than the one in the Bible. Oh, that you would come down. That the heavens would open and that the Lord would show up. Look what it says. That the mountains might shake at your presence. The prophet cries to the Lord to come down to display his power on the on behalf of his people. And remember why he's praying it. It's because the Lord seems so far away. It appears that the Lord is on the other side of the universe, completely out of reach. Have you ever felt that way? God, where are you? Lord, where are you? They were looking for this demonstration. By the way, on Mount Sinai, the Lord made the mountain shake. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 19, the idea of the real God coming down. And by the way, He will come down. And He does come down in the person of Jesus Christ. 
In the past, the Gentile nations opposed him and the Gentile nations defied him and denied him. So the people ask and Isaiah prays that the Lord would reveal himself in power. Look what it says in verse 2. As fire burns brushwood. It's a description of a raging forest fire where lightning catches the forest on fire and it begins to burn as fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your at your presence here's the idea like a raging fire like a fire that causes water to boil in a very real sense this is what the prophet is saying Just like a fire burns and a fire causes water to boil, I think it's the prophet's prayer of saying we want to experience your presence. Not in a weird way. Not in some sort of contrived religious way. In verse 3, when you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountain shook at your presence. It's repeating what took place in Exodus chapter 19 when God came down and he reveals himself to Moses. The mountain shook. And remember what I said earlier when the children of Israel were making their, their escape and they come right up to the Red Sea and they're trapped. Do you think any of them expected that God was going to part the water? Moses expected God's deliverance. But I don't think he expected to see the Red Sea open and a lane appear. That's what he's talking about. We need you to come down. We need to experience you like our fathers experienced because that's how bad it is. God is absolute and God is unique and God responds based on his holy attributes. In verse 4 it says, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. Now, I want you to understand what's happening. As Isaiah is praying, the prophet cries for God to display his power. He cries out to God to come down and to prove that he is the true and the living God. And since the world began, God is the only God who's revealed himself. You you know why that's important? Because idols can't see. Idols can't speak. Idols can't hear. No one has ever experienced deliverance from a man-made philosophy or from a man-made idol. Is there anything that human beings have made up in their mind, their philosophy, that they fabricated out of their own imagination that's able to save you? to forgive your sin and to reconcile you to the Father? The answer is no. In verse 5 it says, You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness. Who remembers you in your ways? You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. By the way, at the beginning of the verse where it says, You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness. Listen carefully to that. 
It's the answer in part to the prayer. The Lord comes down. For who? For those who wait upon Him. Remember what it says earlier in the book of Isaiah? They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. And wait doesn't mean wait around. It doesn't mean like you're trying to kill time and so you're just waiting and waiting and waiting and hoping that the Lord shows up. That's not it at all. It's like the queen and the lady-in-waiting. When the queen beckons the lady-in-waiting to come, you are ready and available to respond. Those who wait on the Lord, those who truly believe in the Lord, those who trust the promises of the Lord, those who truly obey His commandments, the righteous aren't simply the people who believe in God, but those who obey the Lord. Again, Ray Ortland says this, and I quote, God meets not the brilliant one, not the lucky one, but the one who is joyfully, humbly going along in the simple, ordinary path of obedience. That's where God can be found, not with a guru on a mountaintop, but right where you are, if you are willing. You don't need to run from your life. It's where God wants to meet you. You don't need to wait for ideal conditions. You just need to use the life you do have to remember God and His ways. Are God's ways your ways? Is He the center of your lifestyle? For all of us, that's an adjustment worth making, unquote. In other words, what he's saying is, guess what? God doesn't show up in some sort of spectacular way. As a matter of fact, For those of you who want to experience Him and experience His presence, it goes in waiting on the Lord in the mundane, everyday, day in and day out life that you experience, but as you love Him and serve Him and him, and, and make yourself available to Him. Someone has once said that renewal is when God touches the heart of a single individual. Revival is when God touches a community of faith. Awakening is when the wider society is impacted. And guess what? When you wait on the Lord, when you don't grow weary in waiting, when you make yourself available to the Lord and you say, Look, Lord, I am in the place that you have placed me in, and I want to love you and serve you and obey you in the place where I find myself. In Psalm 40, verse 1, the psalmist wrote, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. You see, it's possible to walk with the Lord in such a way that you have this external, observable, morally right, virtual, virtual appearance of morality. In other words, you look okay to your husband, you look okay to your wife, you look okay to your neighbor, you come to church, you carry your Bible, you walk through the door, you come in, you sit down, you, you do the right things, you say the right things. But you don't have real joy in your heart and in your life. You have the appearance of relationship and friendship. 
But the secret, if there is a secret, to enjoying the presence of God and the manifestation of His power and effective service in Him is to delight in Him. It's to delight in the Lord. It isn't just simply to wake up and say, I have to read a few more chapters because if I read through my Bible this year, God will like me. If I can just remain faithful in my prayer life, if I can just remain faithful in this kind of religious activity, if I can just remain faithful, then that will make God happy and everything will be fine. But that is not delighting yourself in the Lord. Delighting yourself in the Lord is loving Him and experiencing Him The Bible says his eye is upon them that fear him. And again, I'm not talking about in the sense of the Lord is looking at you and he's looking for an opportunity to terrorize you or terrify you. But that his eye is upon you because you care about what he thinks. You care about the mind of God and the heart of God and the the circumstances. And in verse 5, look what it says. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. So there is the cry, if you will, to confess. To confess your sin. Look at that expression. We need to be saved. It's interesting to me, in the revised version it says, shall we be saved? I think that's interesting. Is this a rhetorical question? You meet him who rejoices. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue. Shall we be saved? The idea being, hey, look. If it's a rhetorical question, the question is answered that you have no right to be delivered. Let me, let me help you understand something. As Isaiah is praying this prayer, and he sees the circumstances of the nation Israel, and the nation that's turned their back on God, and disobeyed God, and rebelled against God, and has continued to live a life of wickedness and estrangement from God, do they deserve to be saved? Clearly the answer is, No. But I suspect it is a cry of confession. Not shall we be saved, but we need to be saved. So here's the question. If you need to be saved, you have to come to the conclusion that you need to be saved. So the next question, is God able to rescue? Is God able to save? Charlie Peacock used to sing a song. It went, You don't ask a dying man if he wants to be free. You don't ask a dying man if he wants to be saved. If you see a guy splashing out there on the water, do you, do you just cruise by and go, Excuse me, I could, couldn't help but noticing you're drowning. You're about to die. Hey, I don't mean to be rude or intrusive. Would you like some help? 
That's the point. Is God restricted or prohibited from helping because of the severity of the trial or the nature of the hardship? Will God save people if they remain in their sin? If, will God save people if they deny His Word? Will God save people if they rebel and continue to rebel against Him? So here's the problem. Look what it says in verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Here's the picture. The people are soaked in sin. They're infected by sin. Even the righteousness of the people, even their best effort to do what's good, is unclean and impure. And Isaiah calls them filthy rags. These are contaminated cloths. Different scholars have suggested they mean different things. Some suggest that this refers to the cloth um, of a contagious infection, like a leper whose sores are open and running, like some sort of cancerous, contagious infection that has been soaked in filth. It may also refer to the cloth that was used by women during their menstrual cycle, which meant that they became ceremonially unclean under the law, according to Leviticus chapter 15, verse 19, and according to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 17. When we measure our best deeds by God's perfect, holy, righteous standard, when we do our very, very, very best, it's still disgusting. And see, that's very difficult for most of us to really believe. We know that we're capable of saying and doing bad things. But every once in a while, we delude ourselves into thinking, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I give money to the church and I pray for the poor. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll turn on Christian television don't most of it is a big fat stinking waste of time this may shock you it may gross you out the picture that the Bible paints you may be disgusted and revolted and offended but that's the point that Isaiah wants to make Isaiah wants to shock you into understanding. He wants you to sense the revulsion that God experiences with our sin. My wife hates bugs. She hates them. If there's a little grasshopper on the screen, she'll go, Aah! She's disgusted by snakes in particular. If she sees a reptile, it just puts her over the edge. We all fade like a leaf. This is Isaiah's way of describing the weak and unstable nature of human beings. When, when leaves fall, they're sometimes infected with disease. They shrivel from the sun and then they blow away. They return to the dust. Now, I want you to think about what Isaiah is saying. In the passage, he's saying we're all broken. There's something fundamentally broken and wrong. We're like an unclean leper. We have to warn everyone we meet that we're contaminated by sin. 
We have to warn them. I have to warn them. Hi, I'm Gino Geraci. I'm contaminated by sin. Don't get too close to me because I'm almost certainly going to ruin your life. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that's not true. Oh, it is true. Second, even in our best circumstances, in our best moments, when we aren't as good as we think, when we think that we're doing what's right, we're probably even then doing what's wrong. Our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Think about what Isaiah is saying. It isn't simply our sin that stinks. Even what's best about us reeks to high heaven. And third, our life is brittle and breakable and temporal like the brittle leaf. We're easily depleted. Our life is gone. And fourth, our iniquity, like the wind, blows us in directions that we never thought possible. In other words, because of our sin nature and because our propensity to sin, because of our wickedness and selfishness, sin will blow us in directions that we never meant to go and certainly in directions that we don't want to stay in. So there's only... One way out. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. God has created a mechanism whereby He Himself will come and salvage the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Look what it says in verse 7, And there is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Isaiah confesses that no one truly seeks God's mercy and God's forgiveness. I am almost certain that Paul carried the scroll of Isaiah wherever he went. No wonder in the book of Romans he says, all have sinned. There's none righteous. There's no one who does what's good. And so Isaiah confesses, there's no one truly seeking God's mercy or God's forgiveness. Do you know what the implication is? We love our sin. We enjoy the pleasures that sin provides. We're not concerned about the Lord. We're not concerned about His cause. Little if any thought is given to the Lord. Little if any thought is given to His demand for righteousness. For many, sin and evil are just philosophical anomalies. They're outdated, inadequate explanations for human behavior. I was spending some time with a group of... high-level law enforcement officers. And FBI profilers are, are, are trying to explain the nature and circumstances of, as they're providing a profile for people who kill other people, who commit the most heinous kinds of crimes. And, and so many of them prefer psychological explanations rooted and grounded in Freud or Maslow. They have this mechanistic view that people respond based on nurture and environment, that people will act out however it is that they've grown up. 
We are a compilation of neurons and chemicals. We're the products of millions of years of evolution. We're animals who are self-aware, but animals nonetheless. And from their perspective, sin and evil are religious words, meaningful only to those who attach meaning to them. And the moment that you suggest that people are wicked by nature, sinful by nature, depraved by nature, that sin has permeated every pore of our being, they think that you're a religious nut. And I try to point out to them that a child, even a child, even a child taken from its mother's suckling breasts who grows and then you place that child in a crib and you let the child hang from the crib and you watch the child scream for its mother scream for its bottle knowing that if that child was 210 pounds and 6 foot 6 it would kill you they have zero idea that we are born in sin What may be sin to one person, according to them, is acceptable to another. What a wicked rationalization. What perverse reasoning. What ludicrous, ridiculous ways to try and explain why we are the way that we are. The Bible says that there's a God. And the Bible says that He rules on high. The Bible says that He's revealed Himself in His holy perfection. But because of our wickedness and because of our sin, we continue to rationalize and justify our wicked behavior, our wicked conduct, our ungodly and unrighteous selfishness. And because of the wicked and flawed reasoning of people who practice idolatry and perverted thinking, we regret to say that the wicked and perverse thinking continues and it continues to, to grow strong. And you have to understand something. That's exactly what's happening to Isaiah as he's praying this prayer, as he's standing on the parapet of the wall, as he's praying this prayer. You have to understand something. Jerusalem is still intact. The cities are still built. But the people that Isaiah is praying for have turned to idols and they've embraced the worldview of the people who surround them. They are worshiping idols. They are practicing every kind of form of wickedness and immorality because they have bought into the idea of what their neighbors believe. In Isaiah's day, you know what they did? They called evil good and they called good evil. Has things changed all that much? How did Did you wake up this morning? Did you wake up this morning and discover that you are now living in a world where homosexual marriage is legal? I remember watching Leave it to Beaver with June and Ward Cleaver. And remember, the problem with Beaver was always something like really simple. Isaiah confesses that the people are habitual sinners. People who sin over and over and over again. You know, in the criminal justice system, they have a name for a habitual offender. 
You've all heard about the three strikes you're out law. Imagine if there was such a thing in heaven. Three strikes. The father goes, strike one. The son goes, strike two. The Holy Spirit goes, strike three, you're out. But what happens to the habitual sinner? The person who sins over and over and over and over again. What happens to the person who continually refuses to repent of their sin? They keep on sinning. They keep disobeying God. Do they deserve to be saved? Is it a realistic expectation that God would save them? Look what it says in verse 7. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Isaiah confesses that God is forced to turn his face from the people. God is left with no choice because of his holiness and the people's terrible sin. Sin separates, it alienates, it severs fellowship. Giving them up to their sin, the people became more and more corrupt. When you have time, read Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 32. The solution to the problem, as Isaiah is praying, Well, where are you, God? Why am I so alienated from you, God? It isn't because God has disappeared. It's because our sin has separated us from God. All this provides a warning as to the effects of persistent departure from the ways of God. Willful apostasy leads to forgetfulness of God. Now, I want you to understand what's happening in this culture. The people who purposely, specifically, hear God's word And then say, I won't do that. I don't want to do what God wants me to do. That when you come to a place in your life where you hear what God is saying and that you don't do what God is saying, it leads to forgetfulness of God. Does that make sense to you? Willful disobedience leads to forgetfulness. And so it was with Israel. There was none that called on his name, that stirred themselves to take hold of God. Insensibility to sin produces insensibility to God's claim. And think about it, when you disobey God and then you forget God, you know what else you forget? His mercies. His love. But Isaiah remembers Look what it says in verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. And all we are the work of your hand. Do you understand what's happening? Isaiah confesses that God is their father. He is the potter. We are the clay. We're the work of his hand. It's his way of saying, you made me. You made us. We owe our existence to you. And as children, we are bound to our father. We owe it to our dad to obey him. But here's the problem. Israel is a marred vessel. 
But think about that for just a moment. Even as a marred vessel, it brings hope. A broken vessel, a marred vessel, can be broken and remade. You're our Father. You're the potter. We are made by you. And we need to be different. We need to be made different. And guess what? It all comes true when the Redeemer comes to Zion. The Redeemer will come. Heaven will open. And everything will be different because Jesus will make you different. Isn't that amazing? That in spite of the filthiness, the disgusting circumstances of our life, God is willing to change us and make us new and literally make us new creations in Christ. This is the whole New Testament concept of what it means to be born again. You must be born again. You must be born from on high. You must be given a new life and new circumstances. In Jeremiah 3.13 it says, Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree, and you've not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Only acknowledge your sin, that you've transgressed against the Lord, it says in Jeremiah. I need you to come clean. And look at the cry for forgiveness in verse 9. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please, look, we all are your people. Isaiah cries out to the Lord to receive forgiveness. Here's the idea. Don't be furious, O Lord. Is God angry with sin? Yeah. Question. Should you fear God's anger? Is that something you should be concerned about? Let me tell you something. If you're not, there's something really wrong with you. If you wake up in the morning and you don't care what God thinks, beware. The people, listen to what Isaiah is saying. Don't be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. The idea being... I can't imagine the Lord being angry. The people are terrified that God would remember their sin forever. That's what's happening. The people, they're terrified that God would remember their sin forever. And if God remembers your sin forever, what's going to happen to you? You're toast. This is why you should rejoice when you read the passage that says, I will not remember your sin. Isaiah pleads for himself and then he pleads for the people. He reminds the Lord that he's the father, that we're his people. Isaiah pleads for the whole nation, knowing the desire of the father's heart. And he says, your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem's a desolation. You have to understand something. God's enemies had destroyed God's cities. Isaiah receives the prophecy. God has allowed the enemies to make the land a wilderness and Jerusalem a desolation. The very place where the Holy Presence dwelt. The very place where David sang songs. The very place where the priests offered praise was burned down. By God's presence and appointment, it was a beautiful place. But now it's a place of desolation. 
Isaiah cries out for forgiveness because the cities of Judah are destroyed, including the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, again, I need you to understand what you're reading. Remember, this is a prophecy. The cities are intact. It's business as usual. The streets and the marketplaces of Jerusalem. Isaiah is praying and he's understanding a prophecy that is going to take place. Let me try and help you understand this. On September... 10th, if the people knew that September 11th was coming, how many would have showed up to work at the Twin Towers the following day? If on September 10th, you knew that planes were going to fly into the Twin Towers and that 3,000 people were going to be killed like that, how many would have showed up? Would you have showed up? I wouldn't have. How many of the people living in the Indian Ocean on the day of the tsunami when 100,000 people died in 11 minutes, how many of them, if they knew that a great tsunami was going to come and wash them away, would they have moved somewhere else? How many of the people living in New Orleans, had they knew that Hurricane Katrina was going to wipe them out, would have done something about it. How many of the people living in the Mississippi Valley who are experiencing flooding, even as we are speaking, if they would have known that their house was going to be washed away, would have said, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to do something else. Like in the New Testament where Jesus says, the wise man builds his house on, on a rock. How many of you know you really know, you really know with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind that this country will one day face a judgment. That God will show up. And he's going to judge the United States of America. He's going to judge Denver. And he's going to judge Los Angeles and New York and Seattle. That the whole thing that we call the United States of America isn't going to remain the United States of America forever. There's a world that stands in rebellion and disobedience to God. Do you think that that world is going to remain the way that it is right now forever and ever? It's not. Isaiah prays for the future exiles in Babylon. Isaiah prays that God will return the exiles back to the promised land so that they can rebuild the temple and rebuild the land. Look in verse 11. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. He is standing on the wall looking at the temple and seeing by the power of the Holy Spirit that it is gone. But he's still envisioning a time when the people would have to come together. Isaiah prays for forgiveness because the temple 
is burnt and ruined. The treasure of Israel is destroyed. He cries out to the Lord to forgive those future sins so that the people could return to their proper place in the land. And in verse 12 it says, Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us severely? Will you refrain or restrain yourself in light of the fact that this is going to, that the city and this place is going to experience judgment? Is this going to change the plan of God? Isaiah prays for forgiveness, knowing that the people would need to experience the deliverance of the Lord. Will God do his will? Will the Lord abandon his plan? Will the Lord, when he sees the weakness and the wickedness of the people, will he go, this is just a waste of my time? This is what the New Testament means when Paul says in the New Testament, he who has begun a good work in you will see it to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may see the temporary failure and you may see the temporary disobedience and you may see the temporary weakness, but God has a plan and a purpose for you and he's going to fulfill his plan and his purpose in you. In chapter 63, Isaiah cried out to the Lord and asked the Lord to look down and help. Isaiah asked the Lord to look down and remember the hardship and the distress and the pain to remember him the same way that the Lord remembered the children of Israel in the past. He says, the same way you remembered in the past, I want you to remember now. So what is God's answer as Isaiah cries out to the Lord, will you forgive? Will you restore? Will you refrain? Will you restrain yourself? Will the condition of the people is so hard, the condition is so grievous, there's a, a, more reproach, there's more warnings. They are so stubborn, they are so obstinate, they are so incessant in their resistance to God's grace that there's a little bit more humbling process and there's a, there's a little bit more breaking process that's going to take place in the next chapter. When the Jews returned from Babylon to the literal ruins of Jerusalem, it was a mess. Everything was a wreck. Everything was broken. But rebuilding Jerusalem mattered to God because Jerusalem became a type and a symbol of God's government on the earth. And when the Jews came back to the depressing scene, they longed for the glory days. You know what? When I was in Chalmette in New Orleans a few weeks ago, I couldn't help but thinking about what the city looked like the last time I was there with my family. Instead of 35% of the population, it was 100% of the population. And I couldn't help but thinking just the city that I knew, the city that I grew up in, isn't there anymore. And there may come a time when the city and the circumstances that you're growing up in will be radically different. It could be in the not-too-distant future that you will long for the day that you could come to Calvary Chapel, that you could sit in that chair, that you could sing songs with the worship group team, that you could hear God's Word being freely spoken, 
when gas was only $4 a gallon. When you could go to the grocery store and get groceries whenever you wanted. How how do we think about this? How do we experience revival? Well, guess what? If you remember back in Isaiah chapter 6, he gave us a picture and a description of what it would look like. In Isaiah chapter 6, there was a fresh touch from God. You see God how He really is. You see your sin and the need for cleansing. You see God's gracious provision. You see the mission. You respond with joyful obedience as you wait on the Lord and you understand that your love for Him and your commitment to Him isn't predicated on religious activity, but true, sincere friendship and and relationship with God. And guess what? There's an awakening that takes place inside of your heart. But for the children of Israel, there's still a problem. God is going to continue to deal with them until they're willing to repent. And it could very well be that God will continue to deal with this nation until it repents. God will continue to deal with this community until it repents. God will continue to deal with this church until it repents. God will continue to deal with this pastor until he repents. God will deal with this congregation until it repents. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would not be so hard-hearted. Lord, we pray that we would not be so foolish. Lord, we pray that we would not play games with sin. Lord, we pray that we would not live under the illusion that we can continue to sin and we can return at any time. We can abandon our sin at a moment's notice and all of a sudden we're going to think clearly and, and, and be clean and, and we'll understand the serious circumstances that we face. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be so foolish and so unwise. Lord, we pray that we would cry out to you today. That today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to return. This is the time when we need to humble ourselves and to cry out to you. Now is the time to reveal our sin. Now is the time to get serious with you. Not when the disaster happens. Not when pain and sorrow come knocking at our door, not when we see the ruins. Lord, we pray that we would love you now and serve you now and wait on you now and cry out to you now and long for you now and be used by you now. 
Lord, we pray that you would come down. And that we would experience revival in our hearts. In Jesus' name.